Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that together we would quieten our spirits, we would quieten our minds from all that is running around in there and that we would we would be able to just sit together under the teaching of your word and I pray that your word would impact us and change us and make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let us open the word of God. It'll be up here on the screen as well, but let's open the word of God to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul is literally breathing threats and murder against the disciples. That is strong language, is it not? Threats and murder. Oh, I think the sense is that Paul is frothing at the mouth. He, uh, he is just so angry about these, these followers of Jesus. And he honestly believes they are a, a threat to what he understands to be authentic worship of Yahweh. I have no doubt that Paul really believed that he was doing God's work. In, in pursuing and persecuting these followers of Jesus to their deaths. The, the religious leaders must have been very impressed with this young Pharisee's zeal. He even pursue, pursues them to foreign cities, they must have said to one another. And I want you to notice that Paul, Paul asked for letters of introduction to the synagogues at Damascus. I want you to notice that he asked for these letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus from the high priest himself. I can't imagine that this was something one did lightly. I mean, a letter of introduction from the high priest was undoubtedly a big deal. And we need to keep that little detail in the back of our minds for a moment. You see, it's very significant that Paul has this letter because scholars believe that in Damascus at this time, there wasn't one or two synagogues. There was 30 to 40 synagogues in the city of Damascus at this time. And until recently, I'd never really seen the significance of Paul's conversions just outside the walls of Damascus. You see, Damascus is believed by archaeologists to be one of the most ancient cities on earth, if not the most ancient city on earth, where people have lived together. The history of Damascus goes back at least 4,000 years. So 2,000 years before the time of Christ, people were living together in this part of the time of the world. And, and Damascus actually first appears in the Bible in the book of Genesis. Just think about that. This is an old city. This city has been in the Bible story since the beginning. And that should, I guess, make our ears prick up. This city has been in the Bible story from the very beginning. 
Damascus is an oasis on the edge of the Arabian desert and it sits on the major highway that travels from Mesopotamia to Egypt. Now, now for a moment, just think back to Abraham. The whole salvation story, the, the story of God redeeming his people, starts with one man, Abram. Abram, who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, up Mesopotamia way. Abraham is there and he probably worshipped a whole range of gods, but one of the gods spoke to him powerfully and said, Abram, I'm going to be your God and you don't have any kids, but I'm going to give you more kids, more children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on than you would ever be able to count. And I'm going to give you a wonderful land. That was the promise made to Abraham. The problem was Abraham had no children, as I, as I said. He had no son to inherit. You see, it's all about inheritance. And his wife, Sarah, the Bible tells us, was about 90 years old. In fact, at one stage we read in Genesis 15, 2, that it says, O Lord, what would you give me for I continue childless? And get this, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham's heir... Remember, the, the inheritance coming from Abraham is actually all about what God is going to give him because he doesn't have anything yet. God is slowly blessing him and I guess his, you know, his, his flocks are increasing and his wealth is increasing. But all of his inheritance, everything that God has promised him, without the faithfulness of God to give him an heir, because Isaac hasn't been born yet, goes where? Goes to Damascus. Goes to his servant, Eleazar of Damascus. He sits all about who inherits the blessing of God and who doesn't. And Damascus appears to be a stronghold for those who stand in the way of that blessing, of the blessing of God. For, for those who oppose what God is doing in the world. You know, I was just amazed to discover that all the way through the biblical story, opposition to the people of God comes through Damascus. Damascus sits just 200 kilometres north of Jerusalem. It's said to be one of the most idyllic, beautiful places in the Middle East. In biblical times, it was described as, described as lush, verdant and abundantly fertile. Literally, it was an oasis on the edge of the desert. Yet all the way through the biblical narrative, opposition to God's people comes from this place. It comes from Damascus. And for a very short time, it was conquered by David. But, but after, uh, after David, by the time of his son Solomon, by the time he took the throne, they had thrown off the shackles and were back to their old ways of opposing God's people. In the 8th century BC, the prophet Amos brought the Lord's judgment on the city of Damascus because they, it says, threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. It's wonderful poetic language, isn't it? Talking about war. They threshed them. 
they annihilated Gilead, Israel. And shortly after this, when the Assyrians attacked Israel, taking them off into exile, they attacked from their base in Damascus. You see, Damascus is it's like the, the home base of opposition to all that God is doing. And by the time of Christ, the Romans had conquered and ruled Damascus. And in fact, it became their centre of government for the whole region of Palestine. And the, the city became very popular with the Jews living outside of Israel. So, so when the, the, the first great wave of persecution broke out against the, uh, the fledgling church, when thousands fled Jerusalem, many of them moved to Damascus. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? If things were heating up in Jerusalem, if there was great persecution in Jerusalem, why wouldn't you go to Damascus? Because that was the seat of Roman power. It was going to be safe there in a sense. The Romans wanted everything to be peaceful. So everyone fled to Damascus. You know, it was a little bit like people fleeing from Sydney to go and live on the Gold Coast. It was this beautiful, lush place to live. And so everyone heads off to uh, Damascus and that's why there were 30 to 40 synagogues scattered across the city because it was very popular in the first century with Jews. Is it any wonder Saul went looking for Christians in Damascus? You see, of course many of them went there. It seemed ideal. Now, I'm not telling you all of that because it's interesting detail. I'm telling you all of that because I think it gives us some insight into the big picture of what God is doing in his world and particularly what the, the prince of this world, Satan, does to oppose the kingdom of God across many, many generations. You see, clearly this city, Damascus, has been a centre of satanic opposition for centuries. And I don't think it was by chance that the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, would be converted just outside the walls of this foreign city. I don't think it was by chance that thousands of Jews were living there in relative peace at this time and that Paul would be quite ironic, ironically given access to all the synagogues to ultimately preach that Jesus is the Son of God because he had a letter recommending him from the high priest in Jerusalem. I don't think it was by chance that this centre of opposition to God was given. Was, was, sorry, I don't think it was by chance that this centre of opposition to God was, was given, was brought the gospel message first. Do you see how God weaves the, the best efforts of his enemies to his own ends? Is it any wonder that some years later Paul would write to the Romans and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, if you actually think about it, Damascus was the ideal place for the gospel to go, for the apostle to the Gentiles to go first. See, history is indeed his story. He is the God who is interested in the minute details of your life. Yet he holds the beginning and the end of history in his hands. Nothing happens by chance. 
God brings circumstances and events into play with each other, weaving their tapestry of life on earth to achieve his purposes and plans. And it doesn't matter what Satan does to oppose his plans, God always has his way, ultimately. Amen? Whatever is happening in your life at the moment, God can use it for good. Whatever is happening in your life, God can use it for good. The question is, will you step into your place in his story? Will you step into your place in history? You know, a place like Damascus, remember, we're not just speaking about a city. We are talking about the individuals, the people who live in that city across generations, across centuries. People is what matters. It's all about people. And see, a place like Damascus, you know, it's easy for us to, to see in the context of the big picture because it's so ancient and because it features in the Bible story. But what about, what about the history of Gorakon or Tukli or Canwell or Budgiewoy or, or Bluehaven or, you know, or Nora Head? I mean, God holds the history of these places as well. God knows the history, the way his story will be played out in the lives of those who live in this holy time and place as well. And he holds those histories dearly because it is all part of his story in his world. And ultimately, it's all about his glory. See, I don't know whether you realise this or not. You are God's man or God's woman for the work he has for you at this time in this place. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, he said, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, we, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Another passage it says, For you are in the mind of God before the creation of the world. A long time ago, God was planning how you would fit into his story. And if you don't step into your God given opportunities now, when will you? When will you? Because your life will pass away too quickly. When you're 30, when you're 30 years old, you will have opportunities that were, uh, that were not available to you as a teenager. When you're 40, you will not have the opportunities that are available to you when you're 30 years old. You, you just won't. And when you're 70, you will have a whole heap of other opportunities. Now, when Louise and I responded to the call of God on our lives to come here to this place when there was no job, when I was 33, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. Because I cannot go back to being 33 again. My son Jordan, who was playing guitar here this morning, who's now you know, almost 16, 
was, was a, a little tiny kid. How old was Geordie? Two or three or something. Two. Two years old. You know, we can't go back there. That was a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and obviously at the moment, this passage is very pertinent to us because once again we're waiting to see what God is calling us to next. You know, last week I, I let you know that Louise and I are you know, really feeling that God is saying that we should be moving on. But we didn't have... We didn't know what the next step was because I didn't have a church calling me and Louise didn't have a job and you know, all the way through it's been saying, I don't think we're going to get the answer to that next thing until we're obedient. I don't think we're going to, you're going to get a job, Louise, until we actually resign. And, you know, it was cool this week because Louise has been applying for jobs and there's been nothing that's come up you know, in the last few weeks. And then completely out of the blue this week, Louise gets a phone call from a place where she'd seen the ad and thought, oh, that would be wonderful, that job, but I could never get that. The, the qualifications are too high for that job. I couldn't get that job. And she got a phone call and you see God had been going ahead and a lady that Louise had worked with years ago now is in that job. And she said, just out of the blue, she said, oh, you know who we need for this job? We need someone like Louise Shanks. And her boss said, ring, ring Louise. So she rang during the week and said, look, I, guess, I don't imagine you're looking for work. But, and she said, you're kidding, I just resigned last weekend. And then her boss rang Louise back five minutes later and basically said, if you're half as good as I've heard you are, the job's yours. So she hasn't had the interview yet. And uh, I didn't even ask permission to share that. So I'll be in trouble when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> I was planning to ask you. <laughs> so praise God. I think that's what happens. You know, God just calls us to be obedient. But sometimes he says, no, you've got to step out first. And then things will start to fall into place. And so that's going to be the same for, not just for us, but for you as well. The question is, Will you and I step into our personal God-given opportunities for service at the time when they come or not? So Saul's travelling to this city, Damascus, from Jerusalem. He's coming there to throw any followers of Jesus, men or women, into chains and to drag them back to Jerusalem for execution. Let's read on from verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I want you to notice a couple of things from this section of the passage. I want you to see the gentleness of Jesus. 
I want you to see the gentleness of Jesus as he confronts his enemy, Saul. Let's not mince words at this point. Saul, or as he would later be called, Paul, was definitely the enemy of Jesus. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that at this point, Saul hated Jesus fiercely. I mean, he sought to exterminate his followers from the very face of the earth. He's having people killed. I mean, he, he later letters in that he confessed to this. Yet Jesus comes to him with, Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? I mean, as though waking him from a deep sleep of ignorance. As though speaking to a dearly loved friend, not an enemy. This is how Jesus spoke to those who he loved. We read in the Gospels about Jesus saying, Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon, or oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. And now to his enemy, this man who hates him passionately, Saul, Saul. Jesus calls to his enemy with loving compassion and simply says, why are you persecuting me? Notice Saul's reply, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. See, once Saul knows who it is who is speaking to him, he becomes deathly silent, doesn't he? Eyes shut, lying on the ground, waiting. And when the Lord tells him what to do, he does it. He does it. I want you to see the clarity of this posture of sinful man before the risen Christ. See, this is a beautifully clear picture, isn't it, of all of us. This is where we all need to be. When, when Saul is confronted with the truth of his sin, there are no arguments. There are no explanations or attempted justifications. There is no, but, but Lord, I, I, just, I just thought... There is silence and there is obedience. Jesus said, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You know, I... I sometimes wonder about what this must have been like for Saul as he sat in the darkness for three days. Having suddenly received so much illumination of the truth. Now just imagine what that would have been like for Saul. Just imagine what that would have been like for someone who knew the scriptures like few other people. Imagine what that would have been like for Saul who would have, as he sat there in the silence of his own blindness, would have been able to recite the whole five books of the, the first five books of the Bible. As a Pharisee, that would have been the first thing he would have done, is he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. So for three days he sat there with the illumination of Scripture and the word of the living Christ running around in his head. 
Imagine coming to the startling realisation that all of your pride and hope rested on a legal righteousness, righteousness that was now false and useless. And that God wasn't as impressed with all of his good works as he had previously thought that he was. I mean, talk about having the rug pulled from under you. Just imagine what that would have been like for Paul. I mean, he must have spent those three days in excruciating agony of self-reflection as he came to understand just how filthy he really was before the living Son of God, this man whom he had helped crucify just months before and whose followers he was now persecuting to their deaths. And Paul must have remembered only a couple of months before this man, Stephen, who stood there before us and told us our own story back to us. He told us our history and he told us that this Jesus was the Messiah, that this Jesus was the son of the living God and this, this Jesus had risen from the dead and that hundreds of people had seen him and Paul and the rest, rest of the religious leaders threw stones at Stephen till he died. And Paul minded their coats as that was happening. The truth is we much each face what Paul faced that day. We each must come to the realisation that Jesus is alive, that he alone is the king, that all of our good works are nothing but filthy rags compared to his holiness, his righteousness. And that really we better just keep our heads bowed, our mouths shut, and do what he tells us to do. See, that's the point each of us must come to before Jesus. See, Paul wrote to the Romans... This same Paul, Paul wrote this to the Romans some decades later. If we all, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us must come to the realisation that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the King, and that all of our good works are of no use in securing his approval and that we'd better just keep our heads down, shut up and do as we're told. Verse 10 continues. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So Saul isn't wallowing in self-pity and shame. 
Remember, this is in the midst of his three days of reflection. He isn't wallowing in self-pity and shame. He is praying. He hasn't run from God as we're so often tempted to do when he convicts us of sin. Saul doesn't run. He engages with God. He engages with God. He opens himself to whatever the Lord has for him. Saul is in prayer. And while he is praying, the Lord gave him a vision. Verse 12, God said to this Ananias, And he has seen in a vision. Paul has seen in a vision. He's blinded. He's praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is saying, Lord, I I am scared. (laughs) It's okay to be honest with God. Ananias is saying, Lord, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, but I'm scared. Because this guy is doing bad things. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, who is Ananias? When, when Paul returned to Jerusalem some years later and a great riot was started where people were trying to kill him, he stood on the steps of the army barracks and gave his testimony. It's found in Acts 22. Okay, and there he, Paul retells the story of his conversion. He retells the story of these days from Acts chapter 9. And he describes Ananias as a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. So, so Ananias and Paul were probably very similar kind of blokes. They may even have known each other prior to this day. Remember what Damascus is on foreign soil, capital of Syria. There were many Jew- Jews living there. And this Ananias, from Paul's own words, was a devout observer of the law, as was Paul. Verse 13, we read that Ananias knows Paul is coming to Damascus. He knows that he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who are called, call on the name of Jesus. But see, Ananias is a convert to the way. He's a follower of Jesus himself. But you see, he's also a highly respected Jew. Isn't the Lord clever? I mean, really, when you think about it, isn't the Lord clever? Not only does Paul have a letter from the high priest giving him access to maybe 40 synagogues in Damascus, but he now has a highly respected Jew and a follower of Jesus, Ananias, sent to look after him, to pray for him, to heal him, and to give him very specific instructions from the Lord. I get the feeling that Ananias was just the right man for the job. I get the feeling that Ananias needed to step into his place in history. I get the feeling that this was Ananias' big moment. Do you see? This is Ananias' big moment in his life. 
2,000 years later, we're only reading about Ananias. Because at that moment, when he was praying and a word from God came to him that only he and God knew about. He was on a knife edge, wasn't he? Do I go to this man who I'm afraid of? Do I trust the word from God that is just in my head? Or do I say, oh, no, I'm going back to sleep? (laughs) You see, can you see how if Ananias had not done what the Lord told him to do, if he had not been obedient immediately, his opportunity would have passed. And we would not be speaking about him today. I have no doubt the Lord would have found someone else to pray for Saul and to give him his commission. But Ananias would have missed out. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, friends. God has very specific plans for each of us. Not just for some of us, but for each individual in the context of the us. See, see, God has plans for us, Lakes Baptist Church as well. His people together living and ministering in his name in this time and place in history. Remember we looked at this Ephesians 2, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Lord called Saul his chosen instrument. This chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. If you are God's workmanship, created to do good works, prepared in advance for you to do, you are God's chosen instrument. You are for a very specific purpose. If you are God's instrument, what is he using you to do? You know, over the last 13 years that we've been here, I have observed some great examples of instruments. Now, I know today it's not the right word to use, but tools. If you call someone a tool today, it's not a good thing. But I mean it in a good way. You see, I I have observed some great examples of instruments, tools in the hands of God. Nev Shaw has great experience and, and skill and experience in audio equipment. And for years and years, Nev has been God's tool, God's instrument. And you talk to Nev today as he battles motor neurone disease and he is deeply frustrated because he wants to keep serving God. And he's finding it hard. You know, I think of a guy like Cole Bevan, who many of you will remember. Cole Bevan was here for you know, about 10 years and Cole was an electrician. And you know, Cole always, he often told me the story that he was the, the building supervisor for the big Salvation Army centre in the middle of Sydney. It was, you know, it's about eight storeys high, this building. And, and Cole was the, the building supervisor, this, this guy that looked after everything. And one day, he was up on a platform. He said it was about 25, 30 feet up. And he grabbed a cable. And there was a lot of volts coming through that cable. And he knew... He said, I knew that the only way 
for me to get off that cable was to step off the platform and that his weight would let the, you know, his hand go. And he stepped off the platform and he said, I fell onto concrete on his face. Like that. And he says, that's why I've got a crooked nose. He broke his nose. That was it. But from that day on, until he became too sick and old to kind of keep going, he kept saying, God saved me for a purpose, mate. So I'm going to get on with it. <laughs> and he did. He was just here doing stuff all the time because he knew he was God's instrument. He had the nose to prove it. Jim McNabb is another one. He can build and fix just about anything. And he just gets on and does it. Because that's what God's called him to do. And, you know, I think about a guy like Bruce Collard. And Bruce can do about anything as well, but he's a good leader. People just follow Bruce. So the last few years, he's been up in, you know, the Northern Territory and Central Australia and just up there helping out teams with MMM. And, you know, I think about someone like Julie McDonald. She's a gifted intercessor, prayer warrior. So Julie heads up our prayer team because that's what God has called her to do. And, and Lindley Lee is a great communicator with children. So, so she's one of the people who's out there just week after week. You don't see Lindley in church all that often because she's out there being God's instrument with our kids. You know, I think about someone like, people like Stu and Shan. You know, God has crafted them to be really great musicians and so they lead our worship team. And I could go on and on. There are so many of you, so many people at Lakes, who are instruments of the Lord and you are doing what God has called you to do. But sadly, there are others who are instruments of the Lord and you are not being used by God because for you, the Christian life is simply about turning up here on Sunday. Well, you know, if there's nothing better on. And that's about it. Sadly, some of you are like tools laying in a drawer going rusty. But maybe you're sitting here going, no, but hang on, you don't understand. I can't, I can't play a musical instrument. I tried as a kid to play piano and I just couldn't kind of get it together. And, you know, I couldn't do that or I couldn't get up the front and, you know, do something or I couldn't teach Sunday school. I want you on the way out the door. You just have a look across at the left near the church building there and I want you to notice the length of the grass. And at the front of the building over there. And you ask yourself, hang on, can I push a mower? Because I've got to tell you, we don't have enough guys mowing the lawn here at Lakes. So there's no excuse, okay? There isn't. There is no excuse for lying in a drawer going rusty. God has great things for you to do. But some of you are just not interested. And as a result, you're missing your moment in history. See, as I said before, the question is, will you step into your personal God-given opportunities for service or not? Will you, like Ananias, be obedient to what God is calling you to do? Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Brother Saul. Isn't that beautiful? Ananias lays a comforting hand on his murderous, persecuting Brother, brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Remember, there's 30 to 40 of them. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, you see, because he knew the Old Testament so well, that Jesus was the Christ. See, immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Paul didn't waste any time in doing what the Lord commanded him to do. Immediately, he stood up in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And in doing so, he confounded the Jews living in Damascus. I just want to ask you this one thing this morning. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting to know more about the Bible before you start doing what God is calling you to do? Let me tell you, as someone who has done a degree in theology, and then done a postgraduate degree in theology. When you study the Bible, all that happens is you actually work out how little you know. You never get to the point where you think, oh, I've now got it all worked out. The more you learn, the more you realise you don't know. So please don't say, oh, I don't know enough about the Bible. That is just not the truth. What are you waiting for? Don't wait until you think you're ready. Do what God is calling you to do now. You should remember this. Remember all Paul's study? Because you can say, oh, but hang on, no, Paul did know the Bible. No, no, but remember all Paul's study led him to the wrong conclusions. All his study led him to believe that he could somehow work his place into God's approval. Is the Lord calling you to step up and step into the, in your place in his story? Do you realise that you are God's man or woman for the work he has called you to now? Because your life will pass away all too quickly. The opportunities will pass. You know, as I said at the beginning, the men and women of Damascus across the centuries opposed the people of God. And it would seem that the Lord Jesus wanted to give them the opportunity to turn all of that around. Do you realise the very first place the apostle to the Gentiles went and preached the gospel was in Damascus? The first place Jesus sent Paul to was the very people who had opposed him for centuries. And did they respond? No. Despite the fact that Paul amazed them with his preaching, despite the fact that he proved to them that Jesus was the Son of God, they rejected Paul, God's messenger, and tried to kill him. Verse 23 says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And from that moment on, from that moment, the Bible is silent about Damascus, except 
that one time in Acts 22 where Paul says, on the road to Damascus, I was converted. The Bible is silent about Damascus. We do not hear about a thriving church in Damascus flowering in the decades that follow. We don't. We don't read in the, in the book of Revelation when the Apostle John has this vision and Jesus has this word for all of the churches. Remember that in Revelation? There's nowhere where Jesus is. And to the church in Damascus, I say this, because there was no church in Damascus. And what I discovered in reading the history of the Jewish people by Josephus is that about 25 years after Paul's conversion, Arabs conquered Damascus. Arabs from the desert regions conquered Damascus and in one day they put to death 10,000 Jews living in Damascus. So the question is, I mean, if you don't step into your God-given opportunities now, when will you? Your life will pass away all too quickly. They will. They will. You see, for centuries and centuries, people have lived in the eastern countries where there's Hinduism and Buddhism and animism, and for them, history was cylindrical. The whole reincarnation thing. Oh, well, life's all a bit meaningless, isn't it? Because you just come back. After you die, you know, 40 days later you come back, you're reborn. And the end of Buddhism, the hope they have is that at the end you'll be annihilated. At the end you just disappear into the universe. You become nothing. They call it nirvana. But you see, the Christian worldview, time is not cylindrical. Time just doesn't go round and round and round. In the Christian, the biblical worldview, God is the author at the beginning, the alpha, and at the end, he is the omega, which is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. There is a start and a beginning. It is linear. And Jesus comes into time. Jesus doesn't keep coming back. It says in the New Testament, you know, that it's been given that, that Christ came once and that each of us will die once and then stand before the judgment. You only get this one life. That's it. It's linear. You get the one life and then you stand before the judgment. And it goes on. Let's pray. Lord, these are confronting truths which come up from your word. Confronting truths because they are not abstract thoughts. They're not theories. They're just grounded, grounded in the reality of bread and wine and just everyday life and dreams and waking in the night and hearing words and having to go and lay hands on people, real people, and 
we have to obey and th- these are grounded in the realities that people kill one another and they reject your truth and Paul has to be lowered down a real wall out a real window in a real basket with a real rope because people are trying to kill him. The, the, these truths from your word are grounded in the everyday just dust of our lives. And yet there is something so beyond us in all of this. I pray that we would see the big picture, just glimpses of what you are doing in your universe, in your world, and be utterly amazed that we are, our tiny insignificant little lives are brought into what you are doing. And I just pray for all of us, Lord, that this morning we would have the courage to make decisions and make changes and do the things you're calling us to do, knowing that these days pass and that none of us are here on this day sitting in this chair listening to this message by accident. And that today, I pray, would be a watershed event for all of us that as your word takes hold in our life and changes us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.